today's story begins with Alma Lopez, and thank you very much for inviting me. Alma is nothing less than an icon in the art world. She's a queer feminist artist based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Before moving to New Mexico, she came from Sinaloa, Mexico, brought to the U.S. when I was about four years old. I've lived... And her family settled in Los Angeles, where she grew up. I think like most, uh, you know, Mexican-born Chicanas, uh, we grew up Catholic with the church just down the street from our home. Like in many Catholic families, a feature of Alma's home was La Santa Biblia. The Holy Bible. You know, the biggest book that we had, other than the Yellow Pages. Um, So I remember as a little kid thumbing through and reading it as a book, right? So I started in the very So as a little girl, Alma sat in her living room with that big Bible. When she opened it, she found something she didn't expect. So I started in the very beginning, reading the story of Adam and Eve, and I, you know, as a, as a girl, identified with the female protagonist in the story, who was Eve, and I thought, oh, this is not going well for her. So I, I think early on, I, I realized that the religion was set up different for girls and boys. And the more Alma read and discovered about religion, the more questions she had about how women were treated within the faith. St. Lucy, St. Agatha... All these other saints, all of these were girls or women who uh, were really good. By biblical standards, that is. They were virgins and they really held on to their faith and they suffered because of their faith. And I remember thinking, oh my God, who would want to believe in anything that sets them up to be tortured and killed in such a way? And so... As a little kid, I remember thinking, I don't think that's for me. As much as some things turned her away from the church, others brought her closer. Specifically, she found a special connection with the feminine aspects of the faith. The Virgen de Guadalupe. La Virgen de Guadalupe, a beacon of hope for Mexican Catholics. As the story goes, in 1531 in Mexico, an indigenous shepherd named Juan Diego saw a vision of a tan Virgin Mary in Aztec clothing. The vision asked him in his native language, Nahuatl, to build a temple in her honor. He did. And today, the Basilica de Guadalupe receives 20 million visitors every year. She is such a prominent female figure who is also Mexicana, right? I always kid around and I say that the Virgen de Guadalupe and I, we're practically homegirls. But I, I definitely have completely different perspectives on her than other people who are religiously Catholic, not necessarily culturally Catholic like myself, right? Maybe it's because I'm an artist, right, that I see things differently. And that interpretation, Alma, is the through line of your work, right? And and you reclaiming stories of so many of the women in the faith, including La Virgen de Guadalupe, to portray a different perspective, right? And that is often what has gotten me in a little bit of trouble. Good trouble. Good trouble, Alma. Good trouble. That's right. Like, yeah, like John Lewis. It's all good trouble. (laughs) Alma didn't know it yet, but her explorations with religion and La Virgen were about to bring her on a collision course with the church. I started wanting to look at work and images that had to do 
with who I am. There was an essay in there titled Guadalupe the Sex Goddess by Sandra Cisneros, where she was asking, you know, what uh, would the Virgen de Guadalupe look like if she undressed, right? And it wasn't that she was being a total whatever weirdo. It's just that the Virgen de Guadalupe has so many clothes, right? And so she really wants to feel connected, right, to this cultural image that we grew up with. And so for me, my response to her essay was, well, she would be wearing roses, right? Because roses are the signature and the proof of her apparition. And so then that's why I dressed the image in roses. Alma photographed a model and created a mock-up in Photoshop of this new version of La Virgen de Guadalupe, a defiant-looking woman, hands on hips, wearing only roses. But when she debuted her work at the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe, it didn't go as expected. People, for some reason, um, took off the roses. You know, they saw her as being naked. In their mind, I'm saying, you know? Because people would tell me, well, ¿Por qué la, la desnudaste? Why did you take off all her clothes? And I was like, I didn't take off her clothes. I dressed her in roses. The controversy was born and spread like wildfire. Outraged Catholics from across northern New Mexico protested. They wrote letters to the governor and delivered a toilet and dead fish to the museum to express their disgust at Alma's peace. There was even a town hall with nearly a thousand people demanding the museum remove what they considered to be a desecration of their cherished icon. I really had to think, why are people so upset? I've had security actually hired for me at the Museum of International Folk Art and also in Oakland uh, and in other spaces when I've gone and talked about the image because of um, real threats to you know, to that institution and to myself. There was a whole group from Philadelphia who organized a protest against the Oakland Museum to take down the work. And also the Bishop of Oakland asked the museum director to remove the work. Even the Archbishop of Santa Fe publicly denounced the work, accusing Alma of turning the Virgin into a prostitute. Alma's response? How can this archbishop, who is like a father figure in the church, look at a body of any woman, even if she was nude, and immediately go in terms of like thinking that this is a sexual image? And I think that that, if anything, points to right the issues that we have, that we, we always have, where women are blamed you know, for what they're wearing or not wearing. Uh, and it's really other people in their mind, are looking at women as, I don't know, as assuming that they're sexual objects. Today, Our Lady lives in the Santa Fe Museum of International Folk Art. Harriet Vasquez, who writes on tourism and museums, wrote a book about what museums will never show you. And when she went to the Museum of International Folk Art, she asked them, what work will you never show again? They, of course, showed her La Virgen. So Our Lady is there, in a, basically in their archives, and never to be shown again. While the original piece may never be shown again, the conversation started by this controversy will continue. There's a lot of really important 
discussions still to be had about women, women's bodies, patriarchy, the way that we're socialized in terms of our gender. I mean, we think that we've gone so beyond because it's like 2021, right? But I think that there is so much violence towards women just for being women. I realized that the real power of the Virgen de Guadalupe is how how much of an, a revolutionary she truly is throughout time. She was a, a figure where individuals could organize around when there were injustices, you know, when there was the unfairness, when people needed revolutions. Maybe this is part of my activism and my responsibility to talk about images like the Virgen de Guadalupe and like Our Lady and all the issues that have to do with gendered violence. You can find out more about La Virgen's history with activism in Alma's book, Our Lady of Controversy. Ven a nosotros tu reino, gracias Señor, tu voluntad, atienda tierra como en el cielo. Danos hoy nuestro pan de cada día, perdona nuestras ofensas, como también nosotros perdonamos a los que nos ofenden. That person you hear praying in the background is my famous on my Instagram, Abuela Dora. Whether she's with me in Miami or at her house in Venezuela, you'll find her praying a rosary every day for all of us. Prayer is one of her love languages. Like Alma and so many other Latinos, I was raised Catholic. My mother went to a Jesuit university, and I had my own stint as a church kid. I was in youth group and sang in the choir, was an usher during Sunday Mass, and yes, I wore a chastity ring. But that's a story for another episode. As I got older, though, I started to see the hypocrisy and abuse within Catholicism. So I distanced myself from the church. And then, like my mom, I went to a Jesuit university. This rekindled my connection with Catholicism because I found a space where I could both worship and critique, where being a person for others was at the center of how you practiced your faith. Needless to say, like the three Latina authors on this episode, I am also on a journey to reconcile my values with the Catholic Church. Can faith lead to activism? Can women be leaders in the church? Do we even need church to hold a spiritual practice? I was attending a church in Florida that, you know, one time I I drove into the parking lot and I, I found like a Confederate flag on somebody's car and I just thought, like, I can't do this. This is Denise Padin Collazo. Denise is Director of Institutional Advancement of Faith in Action, an organization that works with religious leaders from different faiths all over the world to fight economic oppression, racism, and any other form of discrimination. I met Denise several years ago, and she's always been a champion for social justice. Her latest project is a book called Thriving in the Fight, a survival manual for Latinas on the front lines of change. Whether through her writing or her work with Faith in Action, Denise is aware of the real problems within the church, and she's working to overcome them. We're bringing in people who have left the church or feel disappointed or disgruntled with the church. And in some ways, this becomes a place for them to reconnect with their spirituality. I was thinking about a young organizer from Ferguson. He said, you know, when Ferguson happened, all the pastors came out and they wanted to support us. But the fact is, those pastors are the same people who had just left me out in the street for my entire life. 
They never came to where I was. I wasn't welcome where they were. Every institution has to be wrestling with this challenge. Faith in Action organizes locally like other activist groups. Their mission is to fight injustice, and they do this with the help of local churches and clergy. We had um, a man who was being deported. His name was uh, Catalino Morales, an elderly gentleman. He has diabetes. He had been doing all the things he'd been asked to do, and ICE called him in for a check-in or whatever they call it, and they were going to deport him. And so our organizers brought together 50 religious leaders, including the archbishop, and they did a press conference right outside the ICE detention center. And then the archbishop walked Catalino straight up to the door. And then they were waiting for him when he came out. I mean, that is what, you know, that's where we need to be in community. And Not only does this activism incorporate leaders from the church, but it uses religion and spirituality as a way to give organizers the support they need. I think in some ways my work has become a place where I can exercise my values and my faith. We as organizers, we face trauma on the daily. People getting deported, our children being shot at, people being hungry, you know, people not working, COVID. I mean, it's, and so it is a, it's a place and a way to refresh your spirit and reconnect yourself with why you're doing it. Before Faith in Action, Denise worked in D.C. as a consultant lobbying for the National Puerto Rican Coalition. As a Puerto Rican herself, and as a person who wanted to use her access in the nation's capital to help her people, she worked to enhance the social, political, and economic well-being of Puerto Ricans across the U.S. But eventually, she realized this wasn't how she wanted to make change. She wanted to work with people on the ground. I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm up here on Capitol Hill and I'm talking for three million Puerto Ricans, but none of them really know I'm even here. And it just felt off. It felt like there's something off here. And that was what caused me to really pursue working directly with people. You know, I've been working on issues like affordable housing in San Francisco, of all places, um, healthcare, making sure that our families get what they need in order to be able not just to survive, but to thrive. And in this struggle, Denise sees one group in particular stepping up to be the future of faith and activism. We handed the tools to black and brown women and said, go do it the way you know how to do it. Don't listen to some consultant from Washington, D.C. who's going to tell you how to do this. You do it. You already know how to organize your community. You've been doing it forever. The women in our, uh, in our communities are the bones that hold together the blood and the flesh of our families, our churches, and our, our, our most institutions. Denise has seen a lot. Years of activism across the country, working with local communities and people of all different beliefs. After all of this, she's realized why religion is such a source of strength for Latinos in particular. Really, there's only one thing that binds us all together as Latinos. We're all from different countries. We eat different food. Our music sounds different. But we do have one thing that's that kind of experience of colonization, extraction, and oppression and unfortunately, a lot of that was mitigated through the church. So how do we undo that? That's what we're here for, is to break down the status quo and bring in a, a real ethic of love and transformation that is different than, than what happened in the 1600s or the 1400s. She makes a good point. But how do we do that? 
How can we honor our religion and its traditions while acknowledging the oppressive roots it came from? One suggestion is to learn more about the history of how religion came into our lives. I just think it's really important, regardless what religion you choose and belong to, to really know the history of that religion and be able to reconcile with it. And then, you know, if, the, if you choose to remain in it, do it from a feminist and liberationist lens. You know, that's the kind of work that needs to be done. Meet Lara Medina, a professor in Chicana and Chicano religion and spirituality at California State University. When she isn't teaching, Lara is learning about the spirituality practiced by indigenous and African people before Christianity was brought over by Europeans and became the dominant religion of the Americas. Through her research, as well as her own practices, she's trying to... What we now call decolonizing our spirituality. Um and uh, returning to ancestral practices and the knowledge within them. Is there space for Christianity in a decolonized world? That's a great question. I want to say yes. I, I think the leaders of Christianity would really have to <laughs> do some deep soul-searching and look at their history and within colonization and somehow be authentic about it. It's very, very complicated because so much, so much violence, Christianity, as you know, was brought with violence, thinking that it was their divine right that was brought to the Americas. If we were to embrace this, what would it actually look like for us to go on that path? Beautiful question. Um, you have to get in touch with the world around you, the universe around, the natural world around you. You have to understand that everything is alive. Plants are alive. The earth is alive. Animals are alive. It's about being in relationship with all of that. And so fundamentally, you have to understand that spirituality isn't about, um, you know, going off and praying or secluding yourself. It's about being in relationship with all that exists. So, and that's on different levels. It's about being in relationship with yourself, but others, and not just your family, but or your neighbors, but globally. We knew we were tackling a loaded topic when we set out to make this episode. Covering the complexities of Catholicism or even scratching the surface of every religious practice in Latin America is impossible to do in one conversation. But hearing these three Latinas of different backgrounds go through a similar reckoning shows us that part of Latinidad is the story of how religion, historically and culturally, binds us together. And it's complicated. In 2019, Lara released a book called Voices from the Ancestors. The book is a collection of spiritual practices from writers who have returned to ancestral traditions. We asked her if she could read us one of her favorite passages, and she chose one by Tia Naya. As you breathe into your sacred center, in this radical wholeness, Chicanx and Latinx histories are here in their fullness. Spanish, Espanol, Indigenous, Indígena, African, Africana, and other lesser-tended roots take their place. In this radical wholeness, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in like you mean it. Breathe out like you mean it. Laugh like you mean it. Do whatever you need to do like you mean it. Remember who you are. You can subscribe to The Pulsa Pod wherever you get your podcasts 
And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. The Pulso Podcast is produced and edited by Charlie Garcia and Lisanne Ramos. Additional editing by Steph Amaya Mora. Research and booking by Turilla Chavez, Ray Aguilera, Ana Mendoza, and Sandina Malouf. Original music by Julian Blackmore. Our cover art was designed by Jonathan Torres. And I'm your host, Lisa Larcón. The voices you hear in our intro, that's the Pulso team. Thanks for listening. Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.